Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Raquel Ukulis about the new book, 101 Treasures, from the National Library of Israel, published by Scala Arts Publishers in 2023. This fascinating and inspirational new volume provides a thematic journey through the rich and diverse collections of the National Library of Israel and the Jewish people worldwide. Selected by the library's curators and collections experts, this fine art volume presents 101 of the most precious items in the library's collections, from 5th century Babylonia to modern-day Tel Aviv, and shares illuminating stories and anecdotes about these significant works and intriguing people behind them. Raquel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. That's great. I really look forward to this conversation. I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I was born in New York, and I was actually born in Greenwich Village in 1970, and I'm the daughter of an artist who was doing um, avant-garde performance works in Greenwich Village, um, more focused on the workers than others at the time were doing uh, much more boundary-breaking kind of work in also the directions. Um, and I guess I mentioned that because it was uh, one of the one of the cornerstones of my my uh, education as a human being was being exposed very early on to many different ways of thinking about culture and ideas in the world. Um, and uh, even though we come from a uh, modern Orthodox background, my mother's father was a rabbi. He was an Orthodox rabbi, um, the leading rabbi of Denver, Colorado. Um, and uh, my father studied many years in yeshiva. So we come from uh, very strong traditional Jewish roots um, that we're grounded in. But, you know, I always felt like our feet are on the ground of traditional Judaism, but our head, our heads are in the world and in dialogue with the world. And that's, so uh, after uh, an early childhood in Greenwich Village, so we moved in New York City, I went to Jewish day schools. And after high school, Ramaz in New York, um, I went to what I call Orthodox Finishing School, which was a year of studying Gemara and philosophy and halakha and um, uh, Tanakh in Jerusalem. And it happened to be um, in 1988, um, at the beginning of the first intifada. And I was very shocked by what I experienced because from the, the background that I came from, um, even though I just talked about being, you know, open to all sorts of conversations, when I came to the Arab-Israeli conflict, I uh, received a very clear narrative of who were the who were the oppressors and who were the victims, and and it and it led me to not understand what was going on when I came to Israel during that time, um, and that spurred me to ask questions. And even though I was heading to uh, study classics, Greek and Latin, I decided to pivot and study Arabic to to understand what the other in the Middle Eastern context was was saying. And to my surprise, I fell in love, and I came to have a tremendously deep and broad appreciation for Arab culture. And that led me, I think because of my religious background, it led me to study Islam. Um, And I ended up um, getting three degrees in the study of comparative religion, um, Islamic and Jewish studies, um, from Princeton, my BA, and then uh, Harvard, my MA and PhD. And I also took time to 
immersed myself in texts. I did another round in Israel uh, and also spent time in Egypt and Morocco, um, all the time trying to deepen my awareness and also broaden my understanding. Um, and so I ended up writing my doctorate on uh, medieval Islamic law. Originally, it was a comparative dissertation uh, between uh, Jewish and Islamic law on the um, and how they deal with the gap between uh, the law and the books and religious practice on the ground. And what I found fascinating is that um, Jewish law is so um, grounded in the category of minhag in religious custom, which is a way of encompassing um, uh, diversity um, at the local level within a universal Jewish framework, right? But Islamic law doesn't have a category of minhag. It doesn't have a category of custom when it comes to religious practices. And that's one of the, the key differences between, between Islamic and Jewish law. Um, and so I delved into that one and I ended up writing about medieval, medieval Islamic mahlokot debates around um, very popular religious practices that had no legal basis. And so anyone who comes from a Jewish background will hear the echoes of minhag, but, but in the end, it was an Islamic dissertation. Um, then I did a stint uh, for a few years at Fairfield University, which is a wonderful Jesuit university in Connecticut. Um, and then my California-born husband, whom I met in Israel, just said to me, I'm done with the Northeast and its winters. We're going to Israel. Either we're going to California or we're going to Israel. So we ended up in August 2008, making Aliyah with our two little children. And um, I arrived, I got a postdoc at Hebrew University to continue doing research. And one day, my former professor from, uh, who had been in Harvard in 2000 and was a Hebrew University professor of Judeo-Arabic named Professor Chagai Ben Shemai, he offered me a job at the library. All right, and here we are speaking about your, your role at the library and, and how this book came to be. I think, I think that's great. And, I'm in Chicago now, so it's the winter piece. Uh, I relate to that. So being in a warmer climate, it could be nice. But uh, here we are. So I want to I want to get into the book. Um, but I think probably before we get into the book itself, maybe give us a bit of a picture of what the National Library of Israel is, Words. how it's changed over time, and then how the book came to be. So the National Library of Israel is 131 years old, which is saying something for a country that is just celebrated 75 years since its founding, um, which makes the library the oldest public institution connected to what becomes the state of Israel. Now, it was founded by actually a group of cultural Zionists from the Chavurah, the circle of Ahad Ha'am, who wanted to revitalize Jerusalem as a cultural center of Jewish study and Jewish literature and Jewish culture. Um, and so the initial vision of this library, they had a tiny little room with a huge vision and that was to gather all the fruits of Jewish literature in one place. Um, and they, uh, they started out very scrappy, almost like a startup mentality, and, um, and then um, became more and more established um, as the Zionist movement became more and more established. Um, and so in 1925, when Hebrew University uh, was founded, they adopted this as the, by far the largest library, research library around. And the library then pivoted to being not just a Jewish national library, which was its original vision, to becoming a universal academic library. And that tension between those two roles became very fruitful um, because over the years, 
And for most of its history, it was both the Jewish National and the University Library. The, the tension between those led to these very ambitious projects that the library did. For example, um, in the 50s, um, they decided to tr try to gather all known Hebrew manuscripts. It was almost, a, it was a corollary of the Zionist idea of the ingathering of the exiles, where you can't, you can't ingather Jewish culture, which was spread over the world over 12, 1500 years, right? So instead, you get copies. And so from the 1950s onward, we have been seeking out Hebrew letter manuscripts in all the Jewish languages. And then about 10 years ago, we did a, um, a 2.0 version of it called Ktiv to create a digital library of all Hebrew manuscripts. And we've gotten to um, at least 90% of all known Hebrew language manuscripts. And I mean, of course, Yiddish, Judeo-Arabic, Judeo-Persian, Ladino manuscripts, and made them as much as possible accessible because the library, you know, given its roots, um, I, over the last 10, 15 years has gone through what we call a complete renewal process. And while it used to be this more closed academic institution, um, starting in the 90s and then really in the 2000s, um, we rebranded, we became um, a much more uh, robust national open institution. Um, starting in 2007, with the National Library Law passed by the Knesset, um, the library took on formally the role of being the national library, both of the state of Israel and the Jewish people worldwide, which you mentioned in that, that blurb at the outset. Um, but what does that mean? That means that we have a few different roles. The first role is collecting. Today, I'm the head of collections, and so I oversee the process of what? What are we collecting? And because of our mission, we want to collect as broadly and as deeply as possible all aspects of Jewish religion, Jewish culture, Jewish history, and the same for Israeli society across all the different nations and religions and groups um, in the mosaic of Israeli society today. So the first role is collections, and that is both to serve today, anyone research, anyone who wants to research today, but also for future generations, right? We are the institution for col collective and cultural memory. That's the first. The second is in our new, new mandate of being the national library of this country and of the Jewish people, it's about engaging the collections and using our collections as the raw material for several different ways. First is cultural programming, both live we recently have moved into the most beautiful building in Jerusalem, and I hope everyone who comes to this country comes and visits because it's just, it's awesome. It's an inspiring space to enter into any kind of journey of, of study and knowledge and engagement. So we have many different cultural programs and educational programs in many different languages. We also have, um, through our digital resources, in digital content, I referenced um, the manuscripts. We have uh, an, the second largest project is uh, called JPress, the Jewish Historical Press, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's extraordinarily fun to tour around because we have over 5 million pages today. Um, and it's very much modern, the, the story of modern Jews. That's where the story of modern Jews happened in the newspapers and crossing at least 26 languages. Um, and these are all open access. And so the raw material of the collections becomes all these different ways that you, the public, can engage with your own history and your own family's history, but also as a way of broadening horizons and learning about all sorts of different 
cultures and other stories. I love JPress. I've used it many times. It's both helpful for different things I'm research, researching and then just fascinating seeing the Sentinel, an old Chicago newspaper, and just looking at the ads and what was going on then. I really enjoyed that. So thank you for that work. Going to the book itself. So I'd like to, before we even open it up, go to the, the cover. And, and you teased a little bit at the beginning before we started that the 101 treasures, there's, there's something to that number. There was some discussion, debate. So I want to hear a bit about that, why 101, how you came to the title, and then the cover image as well. It's a very beautiful cover image. How was that decided upon? It's funny. Um, both the number 101 and the cover came out of a kind of tension, um, almost like a good joke, right? You build up tension and then you, you relieve the tension. Um, the, when we first decided to create this book as a celebration of our collections as we move into this new building and this new era, um, so we, uh, I took my team of, uh, then it was four curators. These are academics who are the content experts of our main collections. And we did a kind of retreat. Um, and we did a very long list of all the different um, items that we wanna, we wanna tell about. And we decided that the book would be very short stories about these collections. Um, stories about the content, stories about the artifact of how this manuscript got from Germany in the 13th century to Jerusalem in the 21st century, et cetera. Um, and also like all these like uh, really interesting and heroic and bizarre personalities around, around this material. Um, and our list was like 300, we had 300 items. And then we started thumb wrestling about how to get, you know, cause we knew 300 was not the right. So first we were gonna do 50, but then we couldn't get it down to 50, said so 75, like Israel. And then we said, we'll get to 100. And so we decided on 100, and then we wrote texts. And then I discovered after we'd written these texts that we had 102. And, uh, and I felt that we couldn't have 102. That was, that was too bizarre a number. Um, and uh, I ended up, I cut one of the texts I wrote because by then I felt guilty about cutting anyone else's writing. And so I got rid of one of my texts. And I did that, I said, retros retrospectively, I said, there's something actually really, really uh, promising about the number 101, because 100 is a complete number and one tips towards the future and a kind of an eye towards the future, a little bit like a Brit Mila is on the eighth day that seven is the way of the world nature and one beyond that moves towards perfection. So that's the idea of 101 treasures. Um, in terms of the cover, uh, We've, throughout the whole process, we struggled over how to choose one image to represent the collective and to represent such a diverse collection. You know, we have, today we have five main collections and they really occupy different circles, different kind of cultural circles that all intersect. So there's the circle of the state and society of Israel, the land of Israel, the circle of the Jewish world, the circle of our region, we have a world-class Islam and Middle East collection. And then there's this global conversation of the humanities. And the most interesting stories are really when items or ideas cross, cross one of these or more of these boundaries. How do you show that in a cover, right? And so the designer kept saying, well, we'll choose this item. And, and I would say, but that doesn't represent the book. And then finally he kind of threw up his hands. He's like, I got it. And then he created these strips. And what's interesting about the strips is that they're evocative of text, but they're not quite text. They're kind of hints and teasers 
to encourage you to, to open up that book and find that strip in, in the text. And so that's, that's where these, the number and the cover comes from. I like that. That was a nice little midrash on, on, the, on the title and on the number. I, I enjoyed that thoroughly. The other thing about the book, so the structure of the book is that the different items are in, are in sections. So we've got, there's the introduction before and then community, art and text, crossing cultures, other sections as well. I'm curious, were, were there other sections? Because you I mean you can break down things in any number of ways. So were there some other sections you thought could be added and weren't added? And then I'll go back to what you are saying before. Would you be able to indulge us and tell us what was the, te the text that you wrote about that was cut? Or is that a top secret? <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> um, so it was important to us not to write a catalog. Um, and a catalog oh. would be a section on the Judaica material, a section on, you know, the is Israel material, or a catalog would be our manuscripts, our books, or even going chronologically, right? Um, we wanted to, to have a book that was a set of stories. And that's where we came up with this idea of a thematic structure. And these themes that we chose, like friendship, technology, text and power, these are universal themes. They're not specifically Jewish themes, right? They're not specifically Israeli themes. And so that's one of the subtle messages or not so subtle messages of this book. And that is that these collections are in dialogue between the universal and the particular, whether it is the local Israeli stories um, in relation to regional or universal stories, or they are Jewish culture in connection to other cultures. Um, and so that's why we chose the themes. Um, there were many, there were many themes, and there's something a little, I don't want to say arbitrary, but when we sorted out these texts, each text could sit in a few places. Um, because they have different aspects to it. So we tried to be um, to figure out what was the key message of each of each text. Um, and uh, and also to enable a kind of journey across time and space and moving through cultures. So we didn't want all the Judaica manuscripts to end up in one place. So we didn't want the Islamic stuff to end up in one place. And so that's that's basically how we how we structured the books. I'm trying to remember if there were other, I'm sure that there were other themes that we uh, that we ended up canceling. I think um, I think that we merged a few a few uh, themes uh, at the end. Um, I'm actually not remembering anymore because we went through so many rounds, so many rounds with this. Um, there is one one aspect of this of the story of how we put this book together that I really want to say, and that is. Um, the core writing was done by the curatorial team of the library, but the actual writing was done by a much larger group of people. Um, and that is, we turned to all the content experts at the library. In the end, there are over 40 writers for this book. Now, why is that important? First of all, it's giving kavod, respect to our colleagues, because there are phenomenal experts in the library in all parts of the library. Um, and also it's part of the, the, the message of what is the library and what is our library. And that is, first and foremost, it's the materials, the collections, and then it's the people. That's kind of the hidden part of the library. The library is a combination of texts and people, both the experts in the library professional staff and also the readers. And so there are a few of these writers are actually 
some uh, core readers of ours. Um, and when you put the text and the readers and the people together, then you get ideas and you get dialogue. And so the dialogue and the ideas come out of the intersection between the text and the people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a team effort, but it's, it's very coherent and it's, it's very much one work, even, even though there's many contributors. I wonder if we could speak a little bit about the, the creation of the book or, or how it came to be. So we mentioned that it was published by Scala. So I wonder if there's anything about the photography that was involved or any of the other technical aspects that, that are interesting that our readers might want to know about. Of course. Uh, one of the core aspects of the book um, is the is the phenomenal photography. And this is, uh, there's a, a world-renowned photographer named Ardon Barhama who lives in Ranana. And um, and he brought this material to life um, because the book is at some level a stand-in for coming to see the items yourself. And those of you who do come to Jerusalem, uh, you're invited to come to the library and several of these items are in our new permanent collection, um, permanent exhibition, excuse me. And, um, and so you'll come face to face with the, with the authentic primary source. We can't do that in a book. But the art photography is a key component of this experience um, because the photographs are so beautiful that they, they take us several steps towards that, that experience of coming face to face with the items. So that's the first. The second is a key partner is our wonderful designer, David Khaliva, um, who uh, he and I had many machlokot l'shem shamayim <laughs> that like, like authentic debates about how to, how to produce this book. Um, because he comes from a much more of a modernist uh, perspective. If he, he does beautiful work. And I wanted to be true to this material. And so the kind of wrestling that we, that we did, um, I think can be seen in this combination of, there's a kind of more classical aspect of the book. For example, the, the pages are not matte, but they're, um, they're like slightly shiny. Um, if if it, he had his way, it would be matte. Um, but I wanted shiny because I felt it it showed our our classical material better, and also the design is very very clean, which I really love also. But you can so you can hear in the you know in the production there's there are different different aspects or messages, and so there's the 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 fact that these are items that first and foremost we care about the text the content, but the the beauty of the artifact is part of the story. And then there's this conversation across time um, between the classical and, and the contemporary. I think that's true actually for our library as well, especially if you come see the building, then you'll understand, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I've, I've seen pictures of the new building. It's, it's really, it really is a work of art. It's very nice. One of the things that, that we, we're discussing before is that 102nd item, the item that didn't make the list of 101. We would love to, to still get that. And the other thing I wanted to chat about is the, the, what's in this work itself. So we can't get into everything, but just to get a taste of some of the different items would be very fruitful for this conversation. I would love to. Uh, so that 102nd item is actually on display uh, at our new uh, exhibition. So if you come to Jerusalem, then we can see it together. Um, it's a, uh, it's a unique manuscript in the world. All manuscripts are unique in that they're individual items, but this one's unique because it's the only known uh, extant example 
of uh, a manuscript of a Parsha. And that is instead of the whole Torah, so it's a manuscript of Parsha Shlach Lecha, the section from, uh, from Bamidbar, from uh, Numbers. And um, it's a beautifully illuminated uh, on parchment manuscript that is, that is um, from about 1105, that is early, early 12th century, um, from Iran. And the content tells this amazing cross-cultural story because the design of the manuscript, um, both in terms of the calligraphy in it and the very fact that you have a manuscript of a, one Parsha is clearly influenced from Islamic Quran writing. Um, because the Quran um, throughout history uh, was produced either as one unit or seven sections or 30, right? So either it's, are you reading the Quran over the course of a week or, or over the course of a month? And that's why you have that in sections. The Jews have their, we have our own division based on the parshiot of the week, but Jews don't produce manuscripts of parshas. And so that's, that's on the one hand, you have this clear, you know, a Jewish manuscript in an Islamic context and, and, and absorbing from the culture. On the other hand, the, um, the way in which the manuscript is written, it shows the, the um, holding on to the ancient tradition of the land of Israel, of Eretz Israel, and the triennial cycle. And that is an ancient um, practice, the minhag of, of the land of Israel. They would read the, the, the whole, excuse me, Torah over three years. Right? And then Bavil in Babylonia, they read it for one year, and that practice for many Jews throughout history, that, that, took, that took hold. And so in this one, and it's not very big, it's square, and it's very, very, uh, very small, but in this one little manuscript from early 12th century, you have these very large cross-cultural conversations happening. And here we are in Iran, and it's carrying the ancient land of Israel traditions in conversation with Islamic culture and Islamic methods of right. That's beautiful. Are there, are there any other of the items in the book you wanted to highlight? Because I want to make sure we get some time to, to highlight some of those. I would love to. It's actually very hard for me to choose. I feel very. I feel like they're all my children. Um, but I, I would highlight. I can highlight a few. Um, so, I'll start with. Uh, you know, one of our great treasures in the in the National Library collection, and that is an autographed copy of Maimonides' commentary on the Mishnah. Now, Maimonides wrote this commentary on the Mishnah as the first of three great works, right? His second work was the Mishnah Torah, the Code of Jewish Law, and the third was the Moran of Uchim, the Guide of the Perplexed, his masterpiece philosophical commentary on, on the Torah. And the first, this first work was written over a time where Maimonides really was a refugee. Um, his family was from Cordoba originally, and um, and then um, when uh, when the Almohads took over into Spain, they started moving around. They ended up in Fez for about five and a half years, 1160, 1165. And then they, when they got the first opportunity, they fled again. They went into, they came to this land, to uh, the land of Israel. They stopped in Akko. Um, and um, it was he went from one war zone to another war zone, um, and he went from the Almohad persecution and forced conversion of Jews into the into the Crusaders period of uh, of fighting in in the land of Israel, 
And so after a few months there, they realize that they can't make a living, it's not safe, and they go down to Egypt, where he finds a professional life, he finds uh, much more stability. Um, and he writes the commentary on the Mishnah throughout this whole period until we get to, to Egypt. Now, the copy we have was originally one, one whole unit that gets, over time, um, we think it, it got passed down from family member to family member, and at some point it got split into the six Sidre um, Mishnah, the six orders of Mishnah, to six volumes. Um, and as the family in the 15th century, the family of Maimonides, they moved from Cairo to, to Halab, to Aleppo, they brought these manuscripts with them as this great family patrimony. Um, and you can actually see in this manuscript, and that's what I love about this manuscript. You can see in this manuscript all the history I just said. You can see that over the course of his own lifetime, he was, he was still amending the text. He crosses things out. He writes in the margins, right? He was a perfectionist, which is not surprising for Maimonides, and he kept going. And he also amended his commentary after he wrote the Mishneh Torah after he worked, wrote on his halacha work and his philosophical work, he kept going back and like making sure there was consistency across his, his works. And his son, Rav Avraham, and his grandson, David Nagid, they also kept amending the text with just not crossing things out, but comments on the side based on his oral Torah, his oral teachings to his sons and his grandchildren. So they kept on um, creating this living text, right? Um, and so you can see all of that on this manuscript. Now, in 15th century, it goes up to Aleppo, and then um, the stories start to split. We know that in the 17th century, two Anglican priests purchase three volumes, and they end up in the Bodleian. One vo volume goes missing, and we have um, Nashim and Moed, Moed um, Gen uh, women, family, and uh, and holiday-related um, laws, they um, are end up, they are purchased in the early 20th century by the great bibliophile um, David Sasson. The Sasson Codex was just in the in the news. And um, and then when his when David Sasson's um, uh, descendants decide that they're they're gonna sell his collections, so what happens is that the um, here in Israel. Um, I think it was um, Teddy Kolak and also the Minister of Education. Um, they started what we would call a crowdfunding um, uh, progress, a, pro a project in order for the people of Israel to purchase these great treasures. Um, and they raised enough money to purchase seven items from the Sasson illustrious collection, and this was one of them. And so just in this one manuscript, you have this incredible story of this individual, the great paragon of Jewish intellectual and religious history, his family and how they carry it on, and then how it ends up back in Jerusalem. Sorry, that's just one. That's just one out of 101 yeah, yeah. stories. No, I mean, that, that is great, and it incorporates a lot of history. Not to go into it um, for any length of time, but I, we know that this book also includes um, modern modern works, things from, from, from modern times, not just older medieval or yes. earlier manuscripts. Are there any ones there to highlight for, for modern history? Um, so what's, if I dare say, cool about this book is that it doesn't stay in, it starts in the 5th century Babylonia with these magic bowls. It goes through with the manuscripts and the early printed books, but then it gets into materials that you wouldn't expect, posters, maps, archival material, um, music, 
Um, and I want to tell you about um, two items, uh, one a poster and one a newspaper. Um, so the poster that I want to tell you about was from 1919, um, and, and it's a trilingual poster of an Egyptian theater community, um, a theater group um, led by someone named Abdelaziz El-Jahili, um, who comes to Jerusalem, and he comes to a cafe called El Ma'arif, which was based right outside of Jaffa Gate. And it turns out that um, what's called Kahwat al-Ma'arif was where it was happening. It was like downtown of Ottoman Jerusalem. Um, and the trilingual poster shows that this Egyptian theater group came to Jerusalem and they performed a whole set of plays, including Western plays and Arabic uh, plays originals, include, and also including three plays by Shakespeare such as Romeo and Juliet. Now, what's interesting about this poster, it's in three languages, right? In the Hebrew, the way in which the poster producer translated Romeo and Juliet was Ram Ve'ya'el. Now, why is that interesting? Because it was just after the time that the modern translation of Romeo and Juliet was produced in Hebrew, and in turning it into a Hebrew story, they changed the names and they call them Ram Rayel, which means that the, whoever wrote this poster was Okulal with trends in modern Hebrew literature and also Arabic and also English. So that's a little snapshot of what Jerusalem looked like in 1919. Um, and for the newspaper I want to mention, um, in uh, May 14th, 1948, which is a date that should resonate with a lot of a lot of your listeners. Um, so on the date of the end of the mandate and the establishment of the state of Israel, there was a decision among um, all the Hebrew newspapers of that time that because of this extraordinary historical moment, they're gonna put all their partisanship aside and they're gonna produce one newspaper. And they called it State Day, Yom, ha Yom HaMedina. And they, um, and they produced this one newspaper, a one-time periodical, to celebrate this moment. And the, if, if I had time, I would, could describe all the, different, all the different ways in which they're telling this story. They're creating history in this moment and this rare moment of solidarity. You know, here in Israel right now, we're experiencing this really restorative, inspiring wave of solidarity. And so I can very much relate to that moment in history which, you know, we forget how much there was, there was fractiousness among different Jewish groups around the time of independence, but they were able to get it together to come together for that moment. And we're going through after this horrifying period in October 7th. So Israeli society, as much as there's still fractiousness, we are, we are also going through solidarity. That's, that's, that's really lovely. I think it's a great way to close. I want to just for a very last question for 10, 20 seconds, what are you working on next? Well, the truth is that since October 7th, we have uh, put aside almost everything else we're doing and we are uh, leading a national effort to create a uh, repository, an archive and a database of all kinds of material to document October 7th and, and the current war period. Um, and so it's not, it's, uh, it's a very different kind of project, but it is a project of national importance. Um, and we are working with um, dozens of partners, both um, these 
voluntary collection efforts that have sprung up all over this country and lots of cultural institutions, both here and across the Jewish world. Um, and the goal is to create a historical record um, with as much material as possible from oral testimonies and written testimonies to videos of, of the, the uh, horrifying events that took place um, and the, the uh, creative material that have come out of it, whether it's prayers or sermons or songs or poetry or diaries. And so the goal, over the, which will take us over the next few years, will be to have this um, open, accessible, as much as possible, um, uh, archive for uh, for this period, and that's what it means to be the history, the the institution for Israeli and Jewish cultural collective memory. Thank you, Th thank you for, for that work and for the conversation, everything you've done. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We've been talking to Raquel Okelis about the new book, 101 Treasures, from the National Library of Israel, published by Scala Arts Publishers in 2023. Happy reading, my friends.